Because our country is becoming more secularized, there's little threat of government-established religion. But the opponents of religious freedom disagree. Progressive secular society is silencing religious Americans. Given this fact, how far does the First Amendment's protection for the free exercise of religion go to defend your rights as believers? The Supreme Court has addressed this question, and you may be surprised to know that its answers are pro-religion. Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati Bayer, Director of The Conscience Project. I'm joined by Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and D.C. Bureau Chief of EWTN News. We're here at Guadalupe Radio Network's Washington studio, a stone's throw from the Supreme Court. And our guest is Joel Alicea, Professor of Constitutional Law at Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. In the next half hour, we'll tell you what our laws and our courts have said on the right to religious freedom in America. Welcome, Professor Alicea. Thank you, Andrea. Well, Professor, uh, before we go any further, we really have to ask you the, uh, the leading question of what you're building at Catholic University of America. It strikes me that uh, this is a very timely project. Yes, at Catholic University of America, we just received uh, one of the biggest donations, if not the biggest donation, that we've ever had at, to our law school to construct this project on constitutional originalism and the American founding and the Catholic intellectual tradition which seeks to show that the project of the rule of law and interpreting the Constitution according to its original meaning is consistent with the broad and rich Catholic intellectual tradition, which has been a point of controversy over the last few years especially. Well, and you're also involved in a particular way with religious freedom at the law school. Can you tell us a little bit about the center and what your role there is in helping to develop a better understanding of religious freedom as well? Yes. So I'm a fellow at the Center for Religious Liberty. Uh, Mark Rienzi of, of Beckett is the head of that center. And our work in that center is designed to promote scholarship uh, and awareness of what is happening in the law with respect to religious liberty. This past year, of course, was unusual, and a lot of our work was disrupted, but we're hoping to start strong again uh, this year. Well, and it's so important. I, Where I had gone to law school at Stanford has a, a religious liberty center as well, and some of the leading law schools, it seems only fitting that Catholic be in that mix as well as leading the charge for more profound understanding of what we call Americans' first freedom. Um, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned in the beginning, Professor, which is the notion of originalism. And for many non-lawyers and for lawyers alike, that's a big word, not understood well. Can you walk us through how originalism is an important method of judicial interpretation in our courts and how that secures specific guarantees in the Constitution, especially religious freedom? happy to. So originalism is the idea that the provisions of the Constitution should be interpreted according to the meaning that they had when they were ratified by the people. So the original Constitution, before it was amended, uh, was ratified in 1788. We should look to what the language of the Constitution meant in 1788 to determine how it should apply today. That way of interpreting the Constitution is most associated with Justice Scalia, who was its major champion. It's a view of interpretation that is premised both in the idea of the 
people's authority to enact the Constitution and respect for their authority. So what they put into the Constitution is what uh, continues to be in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't change its meaning over time and, and differ from what they decided it should say. But that's also important for, as you're saying, the protection of rights long term, including religious liberty. If the meaning of the Constitution, if the meaning of these words can change over time according to what judges think they should mean, then the scope of your rights will depend on the composition of the court. And the court really just becomes another political institution that could expand or contract constitutional rights according to their own set of beliefs as opposed to the views of the American people. Well, and that fluid notion is something oftentimes people call it the living constitution, that the constitution can evolve or change, um, and its meaning evolves or changes depending on how American society changes. That can lead to a lot of very dangerous outcomes, right? Certainly. <laughs> it has. It has. Certainly, yes. I mean, th- this is uh, one of Justice Scalia's major points that he used to emphasize is that those who advocate what you described as the living constitutional uh, approach to constitutional interpretation, they often stress the idea that this allows the court to expand rights. But of course, that same methodology could be used to contract rights, to make it harder to assert rights. And over the course of the 20th century, the court certainly did cut back some constitutional rights below the floor that the Constitution as originally understood would have set them. Yeah, last month uh, in the Fulton case, the Supreme Court decided uh, that the city of Philadelphia's uh, demand that the foster care agency run by the archdiocese there to certify same-sex couples to be foster parents, that this was unconstitutional. Uh, Andrea has spoke at length with Lori Windham from Beckett Law, the, the lead attorney on the cases that happens, about the victory. But uh, one question that I think needs to be asked is uh, to have that focus on Fulton. What do you think that the court was actually signaling to government officials about how to deal with religious objectors to general policies related, especially to sexual orientation and gender identity? Well, I think that although the, the opinion in that case, the Fulton case, is rather narrow in some respects, in other respects it establishes some pretty important principles and so for example it establishes more firmly in our in our case law than existed before that where a statute say an anti-discrimination law has a, a mechanism of creating exceptions to that law or a series of exceptions built right into the law that then means that the refusal to grant those types of exceptions to those with religious liberty claims will trigger much more rigorous judicial scrutiny of what the state or locality is trying to do to ensure that this isn't, in effect, just punishing religion. Uh, And so that is a pretty important principle because it can be very difficult to construct statutes like anti-discrimination statutes that don't have some mechanism for exceptions because there will be all sorts of unintended Mm -hmm. consequences if you just have a flat rule that admits of no exceptions. So really, the result of that principle that where there are exceptions to laws, then religious liberty claims are much more powerful, that principle could have fairly important consequences moving forward. Professor, one of the things that was interesting about that Fulton case was a very long 77-page concurring opinion by one of your former bosses. Uh, Justice Alito, I wanted to first make a shout out. 
uh, because I'm sure your mom is still so proud that you (laughs) clerked on the Supreme Court, which everyone that's listening should know is a huge deal. And Justice Alito mentioned, going back, the historical understanding of the free exercise clause. And it really showed it wasn't necessary for the court to reach its decision in Fulton. The the court was able to deal with the case and hand a victory to the church agency without tapping into that historical understanding. But he definitely put out a blueprint, a map, for not only the the Supreme Court, but for the lower courts in understanding how important and how broad or capacious the free exercise guarantee is. What were your thoughts when you looked at that, and how consistent is that with not only Justice Alito, but other originalists that are on the court right now in their understanding of this important freedom? That concurrence by uh, Justice Alito is an important moment in religious liberty jurisprudence more broadly, I think, in that this has been a major point of debate within the law, constitutional law, and specifically among more legal conservative types for the last 30 years, is what is the original understanding, the original meaning of the free exercise clause. And this goes back to to a decision called uh, Employment Division versus Smith that Justice Scalia authored uh, in the early 90s that established a rule for free exercise claims that was a fairly restrictive view of free exercise rights, saying as long as you have a broadly applicable rule that just applies across the board. No exceptions. No, <laughs> and no exceptions, as we now know from Fulton clarifying this. There will basically be no free exercise claim against that law. Uh, and Justice Alito questioned that understanding of the original meaning of the free exercise clause in his separate opinion in Fulton. And as you said, at great length lays out an analysis of the text of the First Amendment, the free exercise clause, an analysis of the history of it, uh, and an analysis of the court's case law, its cases over the course of the 20th century and early 21st century, and comes to the conclusion that Justice Scalia's decision, his opinion rather, in that case I had mentioned earlier, Smith, was wrong, and that it instead a much broader conception of religious liberty was instantiated in the free exercise clause. And if that view ends up prevailing at the Supreme Court, if Justice Alito's view of the free exercise clause ends up prevailing at the Supreme Court in the years to come, and there's there are a lot of indications that it will, that could have a significant effect moving forward on a lot of these religious liberty questions that are coming to the surface right now. And I just want to say, in reading over some of these decisions and, and opinions, concurring opinions, it seems like there's a profound humility especially in what I thought was a fairly lengthy uh, concurring opinion by Justice Alito saying, look, we didn't have enough historical scholarship, scholarship on the history behind the free exercise clause when Smith came down. That was in 1990. Now we've learned a lot more about what the founders and what was going on at the time that the Constitution was ratified about how they understood free exercise. And with that new knowledge we can see it being much more broad than Justice Scalia envisioned at the time because he was an originalist, right? So he wasn't abandoning his position as a judge committed to an originalist position. But now we have a lot more information out there. It struck me as being humble enough to say, as we learn more and more and as scholarship reveals more to us, 
as judges, we need to be docile to that. And, and our, our opinions need to reflect it. And that may mean overruling a case. Right. I think that there are a lot of important points there in what you just said. One being that there is a distinction between what the Supreme Court says the Constitution means and what the Constitution actually means. Right? It's, it's entirely possible for the court to get it wrong, which is why the court sometimes has to go back and overrule its prior cases. Mm-hmm. And for those who are originalists, as Justice Alito is, developments in the scholarship and, and the history of a provision can lead to a reassessment as to what does this provision actually mean compared to what we said it meant in a prior case. And this is one of those instances. Although I would say that as, as much of a, of a hero to originalists as Justice Scalia is, his analysis in the Smith mm-hmm. opinion is not really uh, originalist. <laughs> I mean, and, and Justice Alito criticizes him for that in his Fulton concurrence, that it's not that strangely, given that it's written by Justice Scalia, there's very little textual or historical evaluation of the free exercise clause in the Smith opinion. Well, and that's a perfect seg to a case that came in last summer where Justice Neil Gorsuch, who is in the same camp of being an originalist or a textualist, I personally believe went a little too far in a case called Bostock, dealing with the federal anti-discrimination laws. And so um, one concern that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have is when the court looks at a law that Congress passes and in the case of, of this case expands the notion of sex discrimination to include sexual orientation and gender identity, that seems more like a legislative move than a judicial move. And it was disappointing that it came from someone who really, I believe, genuinely wants to be an originalist and a textualist. Where do you think we're headed with that Bostock case? And what have been some of the repercussions from what I think was a mistake? The repercussions of Bostock are potentially quite sweeping in that that opinion, as as you were describing it, interpreted Title VII, the civil rights statutes, to protect from discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status, individuals in things like employment, for example. And so that could have pretty broad-ranging implications. And Justice Alito, in his dissenting opinion in that case, did list some of the potential implications all the different areas of life, uh, social life and and other areas where the implications of Bostock could reach. At the same time, the court has been very receptive to religious liberty claims over the last decade or so. Well, and even in Bostock. Even in Bostock, Justice Gorsuch goes out of his way to kind of point out that there are a lot of issues that Justice Alito raises that are not decided by that Mm -hmm. decision by Bostock and that they are left for another day. So some of the religious liberty cases that we've seen over over the last decade or so where the court has been expanding religious liberty protections or more accurately recognizing that the law already allows for those types of expanded protections, that those decisions are going to have even more relevance moving forward. Uh, Some of these claims under Title VII and other civil rights laws start to clash against religious liberty interests. Among those uh, repercussions, one of the questions that's often asked is, can we be looking at the type of sweeping impact culturally and even legally from that decision, and how similar is it to what we saw with the unleashing of same-sex marriage, for example? 
I do think that the same-sex marriage, the decision which the Supreme Court uh, required the recognition of same-sex marriage in the case called Obergefell, I do think Obergefell and Bostock, the case we were just talking about where Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, I think that those two decisions do have a lot of parallels in that they are both decisions where originalists and textualists in general were very critical and in which the dissenters in both cases were very concerned about what the implications mm-hmm. are for religious liberty. Let's be clear, it's not when we say there are implications for religious liberty or there's a potential clash with religious liberty claims, we're not talking about situations where somebody just wants to punish those who are employees of theirs and and, yeah. and are transgender or have same-sex attractions. Or anything like that. It's not a situation where we're contemplating someone who's just being punitive or nasty or something like that. Like the the types of cases that actually arise, that actually end up in court, are cases where you have people who have sincere religious beliefs and are are being asked to do something or say something that contravenes their religious beliefs. So, of course, one of the cases in the last few years that got a lot of attention was the case of the baker out in Colorado, the Jack mm-hmm. Phillips case, Masterpiece Cake Shop was the name of that case, where the baker argued that he could not be forced to make a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding, even though he was more than happy to make basically any other baked good for a same-sex couple. It's just that the wedding cake had a particular religious significance for him, and and to bake that cake would, in his view, have contravened his own religious beliefs. So I think that that case nicely encapsulates the types of claims that we see, which are people who are acting in good faith and who are not trying to be nasty or uh, or rude, but simply have basic principles that they feel they cannot compromise. Uh, and that's where the clash with some of these anti-discrimination laws come into play. Well, it's very easy when we think about battles in courts to think about there's one side against another. There's an either or an or. And just like you were mentioning before, the Jack Phillips case or even the Fulton case, there's a way for religious objections and the provision of services or access to wedding cakes is available. It's not that there's a a denial and forcing people out of a foster care program. There's a way that people can be served and that groups can continue to do their mission consistent with their religious belief. And I think that's an important way in going forward for all of us to have this conversation. It's not about excluding people. It's about protecting the autonomy of religious groups, protecting the beliefs of religious believers at the same time where the world is pretty favorable to these other interests. I wanted to talk a little bit more before we wrap up about some of the other cases that the the court has dealt with. And one really interesting thing is not that far from where we are right now, it's dealing with monuments and historical monuments that have a religious symbolism attached to them. And, And where do you think the court is dealing with the presence of our rich religious history and tradition, especially when it comes to monuments on public grounds? This is one area where we have seen the court move significantly uh, in the last couple of decades and where I anticipate we will see even greater movement in in the years to come with the composition changes at the court. There has been a long-running debate in American culture and in American constitutional law about 
the presence of religious symbols uh, or images in monuments, as you were saying, or other public displays. And increasingly, the court has been taking the position that insofar as those historical symbols or monuments are consistent with the history of our country, then they are constitutionally permissible. That we're not going to evaluate uh, based on uh, what the judges on the Supreme Court today think about what the division between church and state ought to be. Uh, We're not going to evaluate cases on that basis. We're going to be instead evaluating this based on history and tradition. So, for example, insofar as opening a meeting with prayer in a legislative session goes all the way back to the Mm -hmm. founding, then the court's going to say that that's constitutional as a general matter. And for monuments, insofar as uh, having religious monuments is a longstanding tradition uh, in our country, that will generally mean that those monuments are going to be upheld as constitutional against challenges that they violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. I think that's an important change because these debates can get very fraught between those who, who feel that these religious monuments, these public displays, are an attack on them if they're not religious, and those who view the destruction or tearing down of those mm-hmm. monuments as being an attack on them for being religious. And the court, by it saying, look, we're just what we're going to look to here is the history of the country and our traditions to determine the constitutionality of these types of displays is a more neutral basis for making that those types of determinations. And it's consistent with the originalist principles we were talking about earlier. Now, looking at the history, American political history tells us that there's uh, a lot of difference in terms of how different administrations will implement or interpret uh, some Supreme Court decisions. There seems to be a lot of conflict brewing, for example, where the government, especially with the, the current Biden administration, is imposing clear ideologies that are at odds with traditional religious beliefs. What do you anticipate in the coming years we're going to be able to see from the highest court in response to some of these decisions and implementations? That's difficult to say it, because uh, part of this does depend, as you're saying, Matthew, on how far the administration decides to push some of its policies as they start to run up against religious liberty claims. So, for example, the Obama administration, as many of your listeners will, will know, uh, insisted on trying to force the Little Sisters of the Poor to provide contraception coverage in their health care, uh, health insurance plans, right? And the Little Sisters have a religious objection to doing that. And one could have easily come up with a, a administrative mechanism to ensure that that objection was addressed and that the Little Sisters were not forced to do something that violated their beliefs. But the Obama administration was quite insistent that uh, it was not going to create a kind of broad exemption for groups like the Little Sisters. So that was a clash between the goals of that administration and religious liberty claims that was avoidable, right? mm-hmm. it, it, but it was insisted upon uh, by the Obama administration. And so an open question is, how will the Biden administration approach some Did of these questions? Did it learn questions? its lessons? <laughs> well, uh, that's yes, cause, because the Obama administration repeatedly lost a lot of those confrontations with religious liberty claims. And this current composition of the court, I think, is going to be, if anything, more receptive mm-hmm. to religious liberty claims. And even justices who tend to have a more modest, incrementalist view of the law, like the chief justice, even he has expressed frustration about the 
inability of groups with contending claims, religious liberty claims and other claims, to reach some sort of accommodation that respects everybody's rights and obligations. So I think that there there is some impatience by at least some justices uh, of forcing these sort of confrontations when they don't need to be forced. So sometimes when I see all of this fighting, I think, well, can't we just get judges to rule the way that I want them to rule? To have the outcomes. Forget all this notion about process and interpretive methods and just get to what would be an outcome that I think is just and fair. And I know that there's there's some talk out there, people promoting an idea of the common good would be served if judges use as their tools a common good constitutionalism, where the Constitution really should always end up with what they want as a fair result or what we believe is a fair result. And sometimes I agree with them as far as what would be good. What is the danger in putting that kind of, I guess, liberty in the hands of a judge or a justice as opposed to putting that burden on the legislative branch? Well, this will always be a temptation for judges in particular in our system who have life tenure and therefore are insulated from a lot of the consequences of their decisions. There will be a great temptation to use that power to advance what they think of as uh, the good, right? And if you label your method of interpretation common good constitutionalism, well, who's against the common good? Uh, I mean, we, <laughs> depends we all, on who defines uh, it. <laughs> but it depends on what it, but it depends on what you mean by the common good. But it also it can ignore or gloss over the fact that procedural norms and rule of law norms are part of the common good, mm-hmm. right? And Saint Thomas Aquinas, when he when he talks about law, he he does discuss the importance of adjudicating cases according to law that is written and determined in advance by the legislature, as opposed to on a case-by-case basis, in part because of all the abuses that can come with this sort of case-by-case adjudication, mm-hmm. where you're just determining what, what is just in individual circumstances. Now, of course, the consequence of determining cases based on the written law and what the legislature has set is that there will be some instances where the results are unjust, some instances where the results are perhaps contrary to the common good in a narrowly understood way, but adherence to those rule of law norms is essential to the common good. And an originalist methodology, in my view at least, is the methodology that best advances that. Well, I just want to say, you give a perfect example. We spoke before about this Smith case that was decided 30 years ago. And the response to what a lot of lawmakers across the aisle thought was an unfair outcome was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was almost unanimously passed and signed by President Clinton, putting the burden now just exclusively on the federal government to avoid substantially burdening religious exercise. And and I think that's if we really want to encourage our system to keep functioning, it's not to mess with it, but to let it work. And when the outcome isn't what we'd like, it's great that the legislature steps in and, and passes laws to restrain government as as is appropriate. Anyway, Matthew, do you have any other thing to add to this conversation? Because it's been amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm reluctant <laughs> to add to what we've been hearing. 
But one question I do have is that there's a lot of concern that people have about sort of a partisan court and what those, the implications of a, of a supposedly partisan court could be as a justification for certain other political actions that could endanger the stability of the court. I'd, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I think this depends on whose perspective we're, we're using in evaluating that, that question. If you're asking, should citizens be concerned about how the public in general views the legitimacy of the court? Absolutely, right? And so I think efforts, for example, to expand the, the to pack the Supreme Court, to expand mm-hmm. it, are tremendously damaging to the legitimacy of the court because it, that is uh, effectively just a, a, a straightforward argument that the court is a political institution that should be manipulated. Uh, manipulated. Exactly. Thank you. And so I think from a legislative, political, you know, broadly public conception, we should very much be concerned about the legitimacy of the, of the Supreme Court because the court's decisions rely on a culture a constitutional culture to be implemented, right? We all have to just agree to obey these decisions because the court does not have police officers mm-hmm. or soldiers or anything like that. There's no one who, the people who implement and obey those decisions are other actors in our system mm-hmm. and citizens, right? So it matters how we view the legitimacy of the court. But I don't think if we're taking the perspective of the justices that the types of considerations that your question might raise wouldn't would be legitimate ones for them to take into account. So I don't think it would be appropriate, for example, for the court to think, well, we think that the free exercise clause means X, which will lead to a certain result in this case. But that result would be controversial and divisive. Therefore, we're going to do something else because the controversy of it could undermine the legitimacy of the court. That is the kind of uh, reasoning that the court has employed in some of its most controversial cases, like its decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, mm-hmm. um, where it refused to overrule Roe based in part on what it thought would be the kind of controversy surrounding doing so and what it thought would be the, la- the, the hit to its own legitimacy. And that kind of rationale was severely criticized after the court used it in Casey and has continued to be severely criticized by people across the political and ideological spectrum because it really just is inappropriate for the court to take into account political considerations like that in determining what the law means. Well, and we've spoken about the courage of people who have brought cases to defend their rights and the rights of others to religious freedom. I think you make a great point about the importance of a bench, a judiciary that's courageous. And especially now that religious freedom seems to be kind of on the defense, we need our judges to continue to be vindicating these important liberties for everyone, not just for the more popular views, but for everyone. And that seems to be consistent with what our founders wanted as well. So this has been a whirlwind episode of Religious Freedom Matters. Professor Joel Alicea guided us through some of the vast protections offered religious freedom under our Constitution and the federal laws We can see that religious freedom is winning in the Supreme Court, but the challenges will continue. Thank you, Professor Alisea, for joining us. And read more about Professor Alisea and his work at law.edu. That's the Columbus School of Law's website. Curious website, we all agree. But it's simple and it's clear, and you can find what he's doing and what his colleagues are doing. And thank you for listening to Religious Freedom Matters. I'm Andrea Pachati-Bayer. 
director of The Conscience Project. Follow me on Twitter at Bayer Pachati. You can read more from The Conscience Project at conscience-project.org. I was pleased to be joined by my friend Matthew Bunsen from EWTN News. Make sure to listen to all of our Religious Freedom Matters discussions. You can find the episodes at the Conscience Project site as well as the National Catholic Register website.